In a world where people are famous for doing nothing, we're here to discover the ordinary individuals who take giant leaps to do something extraordinary. Welcome to Moving Forward. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of Moving Forward. I am your host, Kristen Nepper, and today my guest is Ross Wenner. Ross is the founder of the World Leadership School and the Tab Lab. Ross, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Kristen. So I wanted to ask, so what is the mission of the World Leadership School? And can you give our listeners a little bit of background about that? So uh, World Leadership School, our mission is to empower young leaders to find innovative solutions to the world's pressing problems. We do this by working with K-12 schools to help schools transform their learning environments. And we provide a variety of consulting services, and we work with school leaders, and we train teachers on project-based learning and we help schools develop school-to-school partnerships. And so what is the Tab Lab then, and how do those two work in conjunction with one another? Sure. Well, World Leadership School, we have now about 400 kids each year that travel to school partners in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And these students are raising uh, upwards of $100,000 a year, all of which goes through a foundation and into service projects like uh, building classrooms, playgrounds, all kinds of critical school infrastructure. About five years ago, you know, we were looking at all these incredible service projects the kids were doing, and they certainly were making a difference for the school in terms of its infrastructure, but we also noticed that we weren't at all impacting learning at our schools. The classroom environment was remaining remarkably similar. Teachers Mm -hmm. at the chalkboard talking to students. So we came up with this idea, which eventually became Tab Lab, which is using technology to transform learning at rural schools. We started off with a traditional computer lab, And we realized quickly that there's a lot of problems with traditional computer labs. They are uh, extremely expensive. They are hard to maintain with dust and humidity. And they can get stolen. We had an entire uh, computer lab in Belize get get stolen. Wow. Those mistakes um, allowed us to prototype a new solution, which is Tab Lab, which is very simply put, it is a humidity-proof, rugged plastic box with wheels. And inside the box goes everything you need to set up a, a portable computer lab without internet and without electricity. So we have anywhere from 20 to 40 tablets. Okay. Uh, they connect to this offline server called the Raspberry Pi. And the Raspberry Pi has this uh, gigantic library of content that includes curated versions of Wikipedia, ebooks, and textbooks, it has an entire collection of videos from the Khan Academy. So that's sort of the technology base of TabLab. Really where we have put our effort and innovation in TabLab is the teacher-trainer process. Each school that is in the Tab Lab program receives a two-year teacher trainer who works with teachers at the school to help them migrate towards project-based learning and more innovative forms of learning. So let me ask you about your background, because I know you're a journalist, um, not an educator formally. So how did this idea of the World Leadership School and the Tab Lab all come about? You know, I'm 48, and I graduated from college in the late 80s, and I had a job as a reporter in Washington, D.C., and I had this feeling that my life was elsewhere, that somehow I was not living the life I was meant to live. And so I took on a night job as a waiter to save additional money, but as soon as I had the money saved, I quit my job, I uh, said goodbye to my friends and family, and... I went down to Latin America to work, to try to work as a freelance writer. And okay. this was the years of the Pinochet government in Chile. So that's where I went first. And I 
wrote a series of stories for the San Francisco Chronicle and other newspapers about um, this huge transition to democracy that was happening then in Latin America. And I, I ended up working in Peru for a couple of years uh, covering a terrorist movement in Peru called the Shining Path, um, looking at hyperinflation, looking at cholera, looking at also the tremendous economic growth in the region. I went on to report from different areas of Latin America. Um, but after about 10 years, you know, I reached this point where I realized that, you know, basically these two realizations. One was is that the world was in serious, serious trouble. And, and another one was that people from where I came from, from the United States, were, were for the most part, largely unaware of, of this global crisis. I felt completely exhausted about writing about problems. And I decided that I was going to start working on solutions. Um, mm. So I came back to the United States, essentially left my career as a journalist and went into teaching. And I worked at a boarding school. Um, I worked at a day school. I got a master's degree. Um, I got a job as a wilderness instructor for the National Outdoor Leadership School. Okay. And over time, I came up with the idea of, a, of an organization, which became World Leadership School, uh, which is all about empowering young leaders to find solutions to some of these big global global issues. I love that. So speaking of which, and I like how you broke it down that we're in serious trouble and that the majority of us are really ignorant about that. So what do you believe the world's most pressing problem is today? Well, I think a lot of us now are thinking about global terrorism. Yeah. Um, I like to think about root causes. And, mm. and I think that the root cause of terrorism and climate change and environmental degradation and poverty, so many of the global issues is education. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are, uh, I've embarked on a study of this and I've just been astounded by the data. Just to give you just a very high level view of this, um, there are right now 650 million children in the world that are going to elementary or, or what we call primary school, you know, globally. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, under the age of like 12. Okay. Um, of those 150 million kids, there are 250 million kids, approximately 40%, who cannot read, write, or do basic math. Wow. 250 million kids, 40% of the total, who cannot read, write, or do basic math by the time they're 12 years old. And the worst part about this is, is that over the last 15 years, we have made huge progress building, building schools. Now, these days, only about 8% or 58 million of all these kids globally, 650 million kids, are not in school. And the kids that are not in school are in places like Syria and, mm. and Congo and other places, Afghanistan, where it's very, very difficult to build and operate, operate schools. So of the 250 million kids who cannot read, write, or do math, most of those kids are in school. And, and that has really led us to this realization that, you know, it is important, brick-and-mortar projects, building schools, building classrooms, these projects are important for schools. But the bottom line is we actually have enough schools in the world for the vast majority of children. The challenge is not building new schools. The challenge is transforming the schools that we already have. So, you know, our approach at Tab Lab is to say, look, it doesn't matter if the school has a dirt floor, broken chalkboards, and not enough furniture. We can get started on 21st century learning right now by training teachers and by providing some very, very simple offline technology. I, I really don't think that we can, we can wait any longer to, to really make a big dent on this issue of 250 million children. 
That is a real staggering statistic and really sad, too, that they're there, but it's not they, – they're just not getting the information. They're not learning and someone isn't really – I don't know. It seems vested in them in that sense that they need to be. Exactly. Wow. So, you know, having started a leadership school, I wanted to ask you, how do you define leadership? <laughs> you know, that is a great question. And I have to say, the more that I work on leadership, the less I know. Um, <laughs> Amen. And, Amen to that. To you know, that with I everything, actually, yeah. yeah, it's really, uh, leadership is really interesting. Um, I also work with, uh, once a year, I take a group of leader of corporate leaders from Ericsson, which is a Swedish technology company, and I work as part of a team um, to to help develop these these leaders in a week long immersive experience in Tanzania. And you know, in this program, I've gotten exposed to a number of very senior coaches, leadership coaches, uh, leadership experts um, that work with Fortune 500 companies. And I have to say that. What I've learned by working with corporate executives is that you know, the leadership work that we do with kids is exactly the same as the leadership work we do with executives. We are preparing uh, both kids and senior corporate leaders for the exact same world. And oftentimes it's referred to as a VUCA world. In other words, a world that is, that is volatile, that is uncertain, that is complex and ambiguous. Mm. So you know, the question is, how do we lead in a VUCA world? And the best examples, you know, when I worked at the um, National Outdoor Leadership School as a wilderness instructor, we had a very kind of pat formula for leadership. You know, we had these seven kind of traits, uh, communication, collaboration, uh, what we called expedition behavior, which is basically playing, playing nicely. And as I've worked more and more in leadership, I realized that there really are not any pat definitions there are not any there there are no neat formulas that we can say about all leaders leaders come in a staggering array of temperaments and styles and dispositions we do believe that some of the best case studies in leadership are in the communities in which we work i'm thinking of leaders like uh, Bertin Mayans, who is our coordinator in Haiti. Bertin has been extraordinary in rebuilding a school that was destroyed in the 2010 earthquake, uh, protecting his village from cholera, um, and all with very, very few, few resources. It's just extraordinary the work that he's been able to do. So over the years, you know, we have, in the course of our programs at World Leadership School, our kids study these community leaders because we really think that they are the best examples of global leadership that we can find. And the, we say to the students, you know, look, leaders come in all different shapes and sizes. Um, however, there are some things that these, this is not a pat formula, but there are some things that we have seen that great leaders have in common. Number one, uh, great leaders listen. They really understand how to listen. And this is a skill that we do not practice enough uh, in, our, in our society. Um, number two. Uh, great leaders are aware of their strengths and they lead from their strengths and they're aware of their weaknesses and they compensate for their weaknesses. That sounds, that sounds sort of intuitive, but you know, in my example, for instance, I know that I'm good at um, ideas generation and communicating the ideas of our organization. I know that I'm weak when it comes to logistics, for instance. And so I, in my case, I have people that help me in those areas. Being, but being extremely clear about your strengths and weaknesses 
leading from strengths, compensating from weaknesses is something that all leaders do. And then finally, and I think the really the most important thing is leadership story. Great leaders tell a leadership story that they embody every day with their actions, their words, and their thoughts. And what I mean by that is, you know, like if you ask me, you asked me at the beginning of this um, conversation what my background was, and, and you heard from me a little bit about my leadership story. And everyone that works for me understands that story. There is no mystery to who I am as a person. And I would say that in our community settings, our great leaders in these communities, whether it's Kenya or Haiti or Turkey or Peru, our great leaders in, in these settings are, are completely transparent. Mm -hmm. People want to understand leaders, want to really understand their story and why they're doing the work that they do. And so it's not that you have to be constantly telling your leadership story. It's just that you have to have one and you have to, and you really have to live it every day. And it's, it's a constant process of checking in with yourself and saying, am I truly living my story? Um, am I truly embodying my story? Do my words and do my actions and even my thoughts, do my thoughts align with my story? And I think that's a really important daily exercise because once you deviate from your leadership story, people stop trusting you and they stop wanting to walk with you in your journey. Oh, wow. Hey, Moving Forward listeners, if you're enjoying today's episode, consider supporting the podcast. You can purchase a copy of the Corporate Clichés Adult Coloring Book or try out Amazon Prime or Audible using one of my affiliate links, which you can find in the write-up for any of the episodes at bemovingforward.com. I like that. It's funny. I was just thinking as you were talking about that, an interview I saw with um, David Brooks, where he was talking about rank ordering your loves and making sure that you are in alignment with what you say your priorities actually are. So if I say, you know, my priority is my family, making sure that I'm spending all of my time, you know, attending to their needs and being with them versus making money, which might be something that's important, but making sure that the things that are priorities in your life, you understand where they fall and you're, you're dividing your time accordingly. Right. I, I agree with that. So how do you, how would you say you live your leadership story? Because one of the things that strikes me too, as you're talking is knowing where someone comes from and knowing why they do the things they do, but people are so multidimensional. So and I think one of the quotes that always sticks with me is one of my teachers talks about, you know, in order to know the light, you have to also know the dark. So showing people, you know, here's where I failed and, and here's where I've, I've gone astray and being honest about that. So how do you live your story? Yeah, well, you know, for me, I think it's a, it's a process of, of simplification. And, you know, I think when you, when a person has too many things going on, and this is a huge problem of our time is complexity and busyness. And when we get divided between too many efforts, we can't really project a strong leadership story and we can't really lead an organization successfully. And so, um, you know, that corporate work that I mentioned um, with corporations, that was actually the result of me having started a company five years ago. And although the company was successful and I enjoyed the work, I decided that um, my path was not really working with corporate executives. And, and so I actually ended up selling that company. And, but I still work every, every January for a week because I learned from that experience. And so that to me was a very strategic decision of, look, I know I'm walking away from um, a lot of income. <laughs> because right. Working with corporate executives is lucrative. 
but it's just not just not who I am. My life story is about empowering young leaders, and I do that by transforming schools. And so, you know, World Leadership School and Tab Lab are totally congruent with that with that story. And that decision to that difficult decision to sell that company really helped me simplify and crystallize my vision. And I know that I'll be fine financially in the long term. I, I'm not worried about my financial status as long as I'm following what I know that I'm supposed to be doing. Everything will work out. You know what I like most about that? Because I think so many of us have this all or nothing mentality about our path in life and what we're doing and the way you said, you know what, this was not in alignment. So I sold it, yet I still work with them every January. So it's not something that you completely cut out of your life, you know, the way you would, you know, cut off your arm or what have you. That it's something that you allow to flow and just be at ease with it, but you're sure of what it is that you're in alignment with. Right. Exactly. I like that. So going to the point that I had made earlier about, you know, in order to know the light, you have to know the dark. What is the hardest thing that's happened to you? And I think more importantly, what did you learn from that experience? You know, leadership development, there are people, a lot of the big leadership thinkers talk about this thing called the crucible experience. You know, what was the experience that, what was the crucible for you? What really shaped you? And, you know, I, I get asked by a lot of young people today, you know, about advice, you know, they're out of college. This was especially true five years ago during the recession Yeah. when, you know, people couldn't find work and, and people were looking for things to do. And my advice is always to um, push people towards hardship and push people towards their crucible moment because, you know, I think that um, this is a little bit what we try to do at World Leadership School. You know, we have this thing called disconnect, decenter, re-envision. So on our programs, we want kids to totally disconnect from technology and from their normal lives. And then we want to push them off balance by pushing them through all these really hard experiences, these immersive experiences in the community setting. And then finally, we want to pair them with these incredible leaders and, and students they're working with so they can re-envision and see things in new ways. And so I think for a young person, um, it's really important to, to search out your crucible moment because it will come at some point and find us, but we can also be proactive. We can actually go out and look for it. That's what I did when I went to Latin America. And, you know, it was a very difficult year for me. It was, um, you know, I didn't speak Spanish. I had never been away from my family for a long period of time. Um, I had no clear idea of what I was doing except for the fact that I knew I was searching for something. Mm. Chile was just, it was a brutal time of, of violence and protests. And I saw um, numerous, numerous things that I will never forget um, when I lived that year in Chile. And I, you know, I had to interview mothers who, mothers of the desaparecidos, mothers who had lost their children, um, who had been taken away and tortured and killed. Uh-huh. And it was a, it was a really, really hard year. And that year totally, um, it totally broke me and it also opened me up for what I would eventually do in my life. And I, and, and I just wish that everyone would have that experience. And I don't know that all the experiences have to be as hard as that one, but I think it's useful to get, to get disconnected, to get decentered, and then to see things from a new perspective, you know? Yeah. I agree with that. I think um, where I've had the greatest gains in my life have been have followed moments where I've totally collapsed in tears on my bathroom floor and everything has been (laughs) taken away or, you know, been very, very traumatic in some way or another. So I would have to agree with that. Painful though it can be, but it's it's not for nothing, I guess, is the way to say it. 
So yes, are you spiritual? Are you religious? And to you, what is the difference between the two? That's such a deep question. You know, it's interesting. I was raised um, Protestant, Presbyterian, and uh, we I went to church every Sunday with my parents, and my brothers and I were involved in choir and youth group, and um, that was a great experience. Now, fast forward, you know, 30 years later, and now I have uh, a family. My wife and I have two children, eight and 10 years old, and we've thought a lot, I've thought a lot about their religious upbringing, and, um, you know, for us, Sundays, Sunday mornings are just a sacred time because our lives are so busy. And we have decided that, you know, um, for us, we want to go for a hike every mm-hmm. Sunday and, and spend a good three hours outdoors with the kids, focusing on being together and appreciating uh, our lives together and appreciating the world and the beauty of it. And so I think, you know, to me, that is the difference. I mean, you know, we're choosing for our kids um, a spiritual upbringing. Uh, we do pray every, we do say a family prayer every night at dinner, um, which I think is a great daily habit for our kids, for our family. Yeah. And I would love in an ideal world, I would love to go to church, um, but, but, but we don't. And I think that sometimes I think that, you know, church is a great thing to go to because it's a practice, you know, every week. But I think that it's possible for us to carve out daily practices that allow us to have a deep spirituality that guides us. One thing I've been doing over the last two years is meditating every morning just for five minutes. And it's made a huge difference for me. I do feel, you know, I don't, I'm not religiously affiliated uh, mm-hmm. per se, but I do feel like I have a very strong, um, a very strong connection to the goodness, the good energy in the world. And I think being connected to good energy in the world is so important today when we are constantly bombarded by negative news on the television and in the newspaper. Agreed. Yeah, I like the way you said that too, good energy. I think that really kind of sums it up. That leads me to my next question, which is where did your dedication to service derive from? For me, to be honest, it has been sort of my experiences in in Latin America and seeing poverty up close, seeing... Mm kids who are really hugely disadvantaged and not only not only globally but also here in the United States I spent uh, last week on the eastern shore of Virginia which is a, a rural part of Virginia visiting different um, elementary schools and one of the schools that I entered into we walked I was with a group of school leaders and we're thinking about partnering with the school and we walked into the cafeteria and, you know, this is a school that has 65% free and reduced lunch. And the kids looked at us like we were from out of space. So these kids had not seen visitors in weeks, maybe even months. And in my work, I keep images of kids like this in my mind constantly because I, I feel like it constantly reminds me of my purpose, of my leadership story. I even keep pictures in my office of, of kids from around the world who I've met who really deserve a much better education than what they have. And I think keeping those images in our minds is really important. These images are not as uh, as horrifying as other images you might come up with, but they serve to really, you know, they're, they're kids that I remember from around the world, but they do really help me um, stay motivated, even when things get tough and I get um, really exhausted. I can only imagine. Mm. So final question on that note. When do you feel the most free? Yeah, 
Well, you know, I like um, Edward Abbey is one of my favorite authors. He's, of course, the um, great naturalist writer in the United States. And he, you know, he talked about the importance of being a, um, a part-time activist. In other words, you know, it's great to be an activist, but you can't, you can't allow that to be 100% of your being because that's just simply not sustainable. I do work really hard, but I also am really disciplined about making sure that my weekends are free for my family. And I'm right. also disciplined about at least a couple of times a year, taking time to do you know, um, the sports that really make me feel free. And top, at the very top of that list is kayaking. Oh. Whitewater kayaking is just an incredible experience. We have kayak since I was 16 years old. And here in Colorado, where I live, we have some great rivers. And so that is just, you know, being on the river, it allows me to completely disconnect from everything that's going on and really allows me to, I don't know, just, just become, just feel totally free and, and invigorated. Mm, I like that. Ross, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure to get to know this, this program and get to know you a little bit. Thank you. And listeners, thank you as well. If you would like to learn more about Ross or any of our guests, please go to bemovingforward.com. That's bemovingforward.com. Thanks. We'll see you next week. And Satnam. Now it's time for you to move forward and discover the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and bemovingforward.com. All rights reserved.